Section twenty of How the Other Half Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Jane. How the Other Half Lives by Jacob Rees. Chapter twenty. The Reign of Rum. Where God builds a church, the devil builds next door a saloon, is an old saying that has lost its point in New York. Either the devil was on the ground first, or has been doing a good deal more in the way of building. I tried once to find out how the account stood, and counted to a hundred and eleven Protestant churches, chapels, and places of worship of every kind below 14th Street, 4,065 saloons. The worst half of the tenement population lives down there, and it has to this day the worst half of the saloons. Uptown the account stands a little bigger, but there are easily ten saloons to every church today. I am afraid, too, that the congregations are larger by a good deal. Certainly the attendance is steadier, and the contributions more liberal the week round, Sunday included. Turn and twist it as we may, over every bulwark for decency and morality where society erects, the saloon project is colossal shadow, omen of evil wherever it falls into the lives of the poor. Nowhere is its mark so broad or so black. To their misery it sticketh closer than a brother, persuading them that within its doors only is refuge, relief. It has the best of the argument, too, for it is true, worse pity, that in many a tenement house block the saloon is the one bright and cheery, humanely decent spot to be found. It is a sorry admission to make that to bring the rest of the neighbourhood up to the level of the saloon would be one way of squelching it, but it is so. Wherever the tenements thicken, it multiplies. Upon the direst poverty, of their crowds it grows fat and prosperous, levying upon a tax heavier than all the rest of its grievous burdens combined. It is not yet two years since the excise board made the rule that no three corners of any street crossing, not already so occupied, should thenceforth be licensed for rum-selling, and the tardy prohibition was intended for the tenement districts. Nowhere else is there need of it. One may walk miles through the homes of the poor searching vainly for an open reading-room, a cheerful coffee-house, a decent club that is not a cloak for the traffic in rum. The dram-shop yawns at every step, the poor man's club, his forum and his haven of rest when weary and disgusted with the crowding and quarrelling and the wretchedness at home. With the poison dealt out there he takes his politics, in quality not far apart. As the source, so the stream. The rum-shop turns a political crank in New York. The natural yield is rum-politics. Of what that means, successive boards of aldermen, composed in a measure, if not of a majority, of dive-keepers, have given New York a taste. The disgrace of the infamous boodle-board will be remembered until some corruption even fouler crops out and throws it into the shade. What relation the saloon bears to the crowds, let me illustrate by a comparison. Below 14th Street were, when the health department took its first accurate census of the tenements a year and a half ago, 13,220 of the 32,390 buildings classed as such in the whole city. Of the 1,100,000 tenants, not quite half a million, embracing a host of more than 63,000 children under five years of age, lived below the line. 
Below it also were 234 of the cheap lodging-houses accounted for by the police last year, with a total of four million and a half of lodgers for the twelve-month, fifty-nine of the city's 110 pawn-shops, and 4,065 of its 7,884 saloons. The foremost densely peopled precincts, the 4th, 6th, 10th, and 11th, supported together in round numbers 1,200 saloons, and their returns show 27% of the whole number of arrests for the year. The 11th precinct, that has the greatest and the poorest crowds of all, it is the 10th ward and harboured one-third of the army of homeless lodgers and 14% of all the prisoners of the year, kept 485 saloons going in 1889. It is not on record that one of them all failed for want of support. A number of them, on the contrary, had brought their owners wealth and prominence. From their bars these eminent citizens stepped proudly into the councils of the city and the state. The very floor of one of the bar-rooms, in a neighbourhood that lately resounded with the cry for bread of starving workmen, is paved with silver dollars. East-side poverty is not alone in thus rewarding the tyrants that sweeten its cup of bitterness with their treacherous poison. The fourth ward points with pride to the honourable record of the conductors of its tub of blood and a dozen bar-rooms with less startling titles. The west side to the wealth and social standing of the owners of such resorts as the Witch's Broth and the Plug Hat, in the region of Hell's Kitchen three-cent whiskey, names ominous of the concoctions brewed there and their fatality generous measure. Another word that boasts some of the best residences and the bluest blood in Manhattan Island honours with political leadership in the ruling party the proprietor of one of the most disreputable black and tan dives and dancing halls to be found anywhere. Criminal and policemen alike do him homage. The list might be strung out to make texts for sermons with a stronger home flavour than many that are preached in our pulpits on Sunday. But I have not set out to write the political history of New York. Besides, the list would not be complete. Secret dives are skulking in the slums, and out of them, that are not labelled respectable by a board of excise, and support no family entrance. Their business, like that of the stale beer dives, is done through a side door the week through. No one knows the number of unlicensed saloons in the city. Those who have made the matter a study estimate it at a thousand, more or less. The police make occasional schedules of a few and report them to headquarters. Perhaps there is a farce in the police court, and there the matter ends. Rum and influence are synonymous terms. The interest of the one rarely suffers for the want of attention from the other. With the exception of these freelancers that treat the law openly with contempt, the saloons all hang out a sign announcing in fat type that no beer or liquor is sold to children. In the downtown morgues that make the lowest degradation of tramp humanity pan out a paying interest, as in the reputable resorts uptown where Inspector Burns's men spot their worthier quarry-elbowing citizens, whom the idea of associating with a burglar would give a shock they would not get over for a week, this sign is seen conspicuously displayed. Though apparently it means submission to a beneficent law, in reality the sign is a heartless, cruel joke. I doubt if one child in a thousand who brings his growler to be filled at the average New York bar is sent away empty-handed if able to pay for what he wants. 
I once followed a little boy who shivered in bare feet on a cold November night so that he seemed in danger of smashing his pitcher on the icy pavement into a Mulberry Street saloon where just a sign hung on the wall and forbade the barkeeper to serve the boy. The man was astonished at my interference as if I had told him to shut up his shop and go home, which in fact I might have done with as good a right, for it was after 1 a.m., the legal closing hour. He was mighty indignant, too, and told me roughly to go away and mind my own business while he filled the picture. The law prohibiting the selling of beer to minors is about as much respected in the tenement-house districts as the ordinance against swearing. Newspaper records will recall a story, told little more than a year ago, of a boy who, after carrying beer a whole day from a shopful of men over on the east side where his father worked, crept into the cellar to sleep off the effects of his own share in the riveting. It was Saturday evening. Sunday his parents sought him high and low, but it was not until Monday morning, when the shop was opened, that he was found killed and half-eaten by the rats that overran the place all the evil the saloon does in breeding poverty and in corrupting politics, all the suffering it brings into the lives of its thousands of innocent victims, the wives and children of drunkards it sends forth to curse the community, its fostering of crime and its shielding of criminals, it is all as nothing to this its worst offence. In its affinity for the thief there is at least this compensation that, as it makes, it also unmakes him, it starts him on his career only to trip him up and betray him into the hands of the law, when the rum he exchanged for his honesty has swollen his brains as well. For the corruption of the child there is no restitution, none is possible. It saps the very vitals of society, undermines its strongest defences, and delivers them over to the enemy. Fostered and filled by the saloon, the growler looms up in the New York street boy's life, baffling the most persistent efforts to reclaim him. There is no escape from it, no hope for the boy once its blighting grip is upon him. Thenceforth the logic of the slums, that the world which gave him poverty and ignorance for his portion, owes him a living, is his creed, and the career of the tough lies open before him, a beaten track to be blindly followed to a bad end in the wake of the growler. End of section 20 Recording by Ashley Jane